0: The title of my message is The Wonderful Ways That God Works. The Wonderful Ways That God Works. There were two high school boys named Brian and John. One was 11th grade, one was 9th grade. And they were sent out together uh, by their church to visit the elderly shut-ins of their church. So these two students go out together together. Um, on an assignment. Neither one was real excited about this assignment. They weren't just, you know, high-fiving each other and jumping for joy. And so they came up with this idea, we'll go visit one person, one shut-in, so that we can say we completed our assignment, and then we're going to hightail it to the mall to go meet some girls and hang out with our buddies. And so that's how they decided to complete their assignment, and that's how it was going to go until they met a lady, uh, an 89-year-old widow named Miss Buckner. An 89-year-old widow named Miss Buckner, she lived down a country road in a little apartment. Her son built this apartment uh, beside of his house down this long country road so that they could be together. And when the boys got there, she invited them inside. Come on inside. We'll spend some time together. And there they were, an 11th grader, a 9th grader, and an 89-year-old widow. And to those boys' surprise, at first they thought, "Well, well, we just don't have much in common uh, with this lady. We're just going to kind of get through this thing and, uh, and just put it behind us to say that we did it. So they mumbled their way through the visit. Uh, Miss Buckner eventually asked them to sing a Christmas carol because it was approaching Christmas time. So they reluctantly agreed to sing a Christmas carol and they just struggled and stumbled through this Christmas carol. And when they finished, they came up with an excuse to leave as quickly as they possibly could. But Miss Buckner stopped them in their tracks. She said, can we pray together before you leave? And so both boys said, yeah, sure, fine, we'll do that. So they prayed and they, they said it took about 45 seconds. But then something happened. Miss Buckner prayed. And it seemed like time stood still. Both boys had been in church all their lives. They had been in church 14 and 16 years. And they'd heard lots of prayers be offered in a worship service. But they would never heard anything quite like this before. This, this was so amazing, one of the boys even looked up during the prayer and cut his eyes at Miss Buckner to make sure Jesus wasn't sitting right there on the bedside with her, because it sounded like he was. She just talked to God like she knew him. And after they left, one of the boys said to the other one, you know, she's a cool old lady. And the other boy said, yeah, she is. She's pretty cool. Two years later, out of the blue, one of those boys woke up with Miss Buckner on his mind. Could not get her off of his mind. Two years later, had not talked to her, had not seen her. He had no idea why. But he decided he was going to get up and go visit her. So he went down that winding road to her house. And he knocks on her door. And she slowly comes to the door and cracks it open. And he says, Miss Buckner, you probably don't remember me. But two years ago, I came here with my friend Brian. My name is John. She smiled at John and she said, John... I prayed for you this morning. From that day on, Miss Buckner and John became close friends. They were not inseparable, but they kept up with one another. And they prayed for one another. And God used that relationship powerfully. And John, as he went into ministry later on, John said this. To this day, I cannot imagine what she prayed me into or out of. At age 14, John learned a powerful lesson. In a place, in a person, in a circumstance, when he least expected it, God was at work the whole time using her example and later her growing friendship to teach him some powerful lessons and ultimately to alter the course of his life. So many times in places where we least expect it, in people that you are tempted to give up on, and I am tempted To give up on. In circumstances that seem hopeless. They seem too far gone. They seem without any cause for us to get behind them. We find God at work. Do we not? Accomplishing His purposes. Always working. Always bringing His perfect end to bear. Listen to me church. Sometimes in spite of us. Sometimes in spite of us. In the first half of the story in Acts chapter 10, there's one consistent theme of God being at work. In the life of Cornelius and in the life of Peter, neither man knew each other. And God is going to cross their their paths. They're going to intersect in a powerful way. God puts them on a collision course that changes their life. But listen to me. It ultimately changes how the early church understood their mission to take the gospel to The nations. See, at this point, Peter was was very uh, Jewish in his heritage. He was very Jewish in his thought processes and patterns. And he was not looking to take the gospel to anyone outside of the Jewish people. Now, Now, Peter had seen some amazing things at Pentecost. Remember, the Holy Spirit fell on Jews from all over the place. And he saw other people converted. The Samaritans. But he had never seen the gospel fall on the Gentiles. Listen to me. God was about to do something that was outside of any box or any paradigm or any plan that Peter could possibly put together. Ephesians 3.20 tells us that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. You and I cannot think up. We cannot plan. We cannot strategize all the good that God is capable of doing. Amen? So let's look at Acts 10, 1 through 23 together this morning. The Word of God reads like this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household a tanner whose house is by the sea. Just a quick note, tanners were an unclean occupation. You had dead animal hides that you were tanning. And so for Simon to even, for Peter to even be there with Simon is kind of crossing one of those barriers, one of those boundaries. God is moving him outside of his comfort zones, as it were. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Verse 9, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Kids don't get any ideas here. The housetops were flat. They had ladders that went up. The houses were connected. You could move about throughout the city like Spider-Man on the top of the the houses. Do not try this at home, anyone. Your, Your pastor is not telling you to get up on the housetop to pray today, okay? Stay on your bed. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were fixing or preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who, had, who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, that means they were trying to find out where Simon the Tanner lived, they stood at the gate and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. See, they weren't even allowed in, so they're calling from the outside. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down. And accompany them without hesitation. See, he knew his heart. He knew he was going to stall out. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. We see God preparing at least in three places. The first one is this. God prepared this city, Caesarea, in advance through the preaching of Philip. You say, wait a minute, Philip doesn't show up anywhere in this text. What are you doing talking about Philip? If you write down Acts 8 and verse 40, go look back at Acts 8 and verse 40 sometime this afternoon. The last stop on Philip the Evangelist's preaching ministry was this city of Caesarea Maritima. Or or for short, Caesarea. The last place he stopped was on this coastal city of Caesarea to preach. So there was already this Christian presence there through his preaching. Well, Caesarea was a highly developed port city. It was built magnificently to rival the Greek cities of that day. With elaborate palaces and awesome public buildings. And beautiful amphitheater and a pagan temple. It was an amazing sight, but it was thoroughly Gentile, non-Jewish in its cultural identity. You see, the Gentiles loved it for the same reason that every faithful Jew hated it. Well, you say, what's the divide between the Jews and the Gentiles? You're probably all familiar with the Jews and the Samaritans, right? How they looked down on the Samaritans because they were half-breeds. That is nothing compared to the way that the Jews looked down on the Gentiles. They looked down on them with utter disdain. The Jews avoided places like this at all cost. So for God to send Peter to Caesarea to accompany a man and teach a man who was a Gentile Roman soldier, generally barbaric towards the Jews. For God to do that, listen to me church, is not just like, wow, that's interesting. It's scandalous. It's scandalous. It would have been, it would have scandalized the Jews. God's people would have been in, in utter disbelief. How could God do this? Why would God send Peter to this place, Caesarea, that is thoroughly Gentile? There's not, a, they, they can't worship God there. Why would God do a thing like this? But see, he had already sent Philip there to preach. There was already a Christian presence there in that city, and God was working, and listen to me, church. Nobody knew what was coming. God had been plowing that field and sowing that seed, and nobody could see it growing. I don't know if you are aware of how bamboo grows. You've seen bamboo thickets, right? Bamboo thickets are half the height of this room. I mean, they're 10, 12, 15 you know, feet high. Well, if you go read up on how bamboo thickets grow, when the seeds get planted, for the first three years, they pretty much grow underneath the surface. And then in like the next two years, if I'm not wrong, there's a little sprout that begins to show up just above the ground just a little bit. In five years, you almost have nothing to account for. But go look at it around year five or six, what begins to happen to those bamboo shoots. They just explode. They grow up and they fill up entire acreage because they're they're moving and they're growing. And and God is doing an awesome thing. Listen, God had plowed that field and sowed that seed and Philip never guessed that his ministry would pave the way for what was going to happen when the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, those outside the faith. The same is true for us. The same is true for you. When you develop that relationship with that cashier, that clerk at Food Lion, when you're buying your groceries and you see them every single week and you begin to talk to them and invite him, I got to brag on Doug Johnson. Where's Doug? Doug. We, we, we had a young lady show up at one of our services Sunday or Wednesday night. Young lady. All right. And I thought she was 20 years old or so. She's supposed to be with the youth group. I said, what are you doing here? Oh, Doug invited me. Doug invited me. She said, I just love Doug. What has Doug done? I'm embarrassed, Doug. Maybe I'm not. But, but listen, Doug's developed this relationship with this girl. And she knows about this church. And she's been here and she's enjoyed it. And when I went back, you know what I said? I said, hey, I remember you. you. You came to our church, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you seen Doug in a while? Oh, yeah, I just love Doug. When you develop that relationship with people, you have no idea how God might sow a seed that explodes in year five, that explodes in somebody's 30s, that explodes in somebody's 80s, and they turn to Christ on their deathbed. We have no clue how God is paving a way in our work. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Does Paul not say that? Do you, did anyone grow weary this week in doing good? Did anyone grow weary in your spiritual journey with Christ? I did. Anybody else? Can I see one hand? Somebody just tell me a story. Thank you, Balcony. Love you guys. Thank you. Listen, God is doing a work that we may not see. He's doing something awesome. Might be under the surface, but he might use you to do it. The second way is this. God chooses some unlikely characters in his kingdom work. Aren't you glad? You know why? I'm looking at a bunch of unlikely characters. And you're listening to an unlikely character. I ran from God's call to preach for 10 years. 16, first time I heard it. Nope, he knocked on the wrong door. That can't be me. I'm not from some high priestly family. Not me, not us, right? God chooses unlikely people in his kingdom work. Why? So that nobody looks at you and nobody looks at me and goes, man, we just need to be like that one right there. They look at us and go, how in the world did God do it through that one right there? Must be a mighty God. He does things so great that guess what? There's nobody else for us to look at but Him and point to Him and give Him the praise. Amen? You and I couldn't handle the praise, could we? If people praise us, what do we do? We swell up so big like a bullfrog, we can't get out of the room. And when they don't praise us, what do we do? We hang our head and drop our shoulders and we sing a sad song, oh, poor me. Nobody's paying attention to me. God sees. God knows. God's working. He chose you. Do you remember last week I said from Tim Keller, one of the the marks of a true Christian. What is it? That we never lose our wonder that God saved us. That we never lose, that we never get over the gospel of our sinfulness and that me, God saved me, a Christian. How could that happen? This is too good to be true. Is that not all, all the stories that you love, that you've read, that you've watched in movies? When Hoosiers, when they won the game, come on, it's basketball season, and I can't celebrate Carolina, so i got to celebrate the Hickory Hoosiers. When the, when the Hoosiers won the game, did you not celebrate it? You think that's too good to be true. How did they win that game? That's the gospel. It's too good to be true, but guess what? It's as true as eternal life. You should not be a Christian if you are I should not be a Christian, but God saved us and called us according to his own purpose and his grace, and he poured it out on us at the cross so that we could be brought in and we would not have to stay outside. Cornelius is outside, folks. He's seeking. He's looking to get in. And you know what the Jews want to do? Slam the door in his face. You can't come in. You're not one of us. That's not the gospel. That's not what Christ died for. Christ did not die to close his arms to you. Christ died opening his arms to us. Did he not, church? He opened his arms to welcome us in. And he pours out his love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace on anyone who comes to the cross. And in brokenness, confession, repentance, and faith that's not four things, that's one. That's an attitude in humility, says. I'm lost. That's all of us. This is Cornelius. Verse 1 tells us he belonged to a cohort. You say, what is a cohort? A military unit consisting of 600 soldiers. He was a centurion of that cohort. That means this. He was in leadership over 100 of those 600 men. Cornelius was proven. Cornelius was strong. Cornelius could have been independent. He could have had that military mindset, I'm going to adapt and overcome. Some of you this morning, that's your M.O. That's your motto. That's how you live. You confess Jesus Christ, but you adapt and overcome or attempt to in your own strength until you run into a wall that you cannot get over. And you sit down and you say, what will I do now? But Cornelius wasn't doing that. Verse 2 says, he was devout, he feared God, he was a leader at home, he was a generous giver even to the Jews who most Romans despised. He was constant in prayer. Listen to me, church. This is the kind of man that you would want in this church. This is the kind of man that you would put four times down on your deacon ballot if you possibly could. This is the kind of man you'd want to coach your son's ball team. You would want to be your neighbor. You would invite over for cookouts and grill out together. This is the kind of man that you would want to live life with. He was a good man. But there's no indication, no indication that he knew Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He was a seeker, but he wasn't saved. He was religious, but listen to me. He did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, we can be all these good things and you can still miss heaven. You can, miss, you can be all these good things and bust hell wide open. Because good ain't good enough. If our being good enough was good enough, then Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was an extravagant and terribly tragic waste of the Son of God. Amen? If you could be good enough, what did he die for? You can't be good enough. You will break those Ten Commandments. You have broken. There's only one who kept them. And he wants to trade places with you and give you his righteousness. And you give him all the trash and the sin and the refuse of your life, and he swaps places with us. How do we get over this gospel? We get drawn away into other things, don't we? We get drawn away into other things. We give our attention and our affection to other things that are lesser and that are temporal. But what did Paul say? Set your minds above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on heaven. Verse 3, Cornelius has this vision. About 3 p.m., this is the time of afternoon prayer. In the vision, he sees an angel who calls him by name. Gives him a special message. He says, your prayers have been heard. He says, they're like an offering that's going up to heaven. What does that mean? This is Old Testament sacrificial language. This is not accidental way of saying this. He is telling him, he is telling him that, that, that his, God has remembered his devotion. God saw his faithfulness. And Cornelius had been seeking him with all his heart. And listen to me, church. If we seek God with all of our heart, what does he promise to us? That we will find him. Jeremiah 29.13 You will seek me and find me when you seek me, how? With all your heart. See, we love Jeremiah 29.11 so much that we don't make it to 13. Danny Akin says, Cornelius is an example of unreached peoples who are seeking the truth, who want to know the one true God. They are everywhere among the nations and God sees their hearts and honors their search indeed. He will go to extraordinary lengths to get the gospel to them. If it's not you, you know what? God's going to find another willing, ready, clean vessel to take the gospel to them. God chose this improbable character. He chose Ollie. You remember Ollie in the Hoosiers? The guy that does the. He chose Ollie, the water boy at the end of the bench in Cornelius, and he put it in his heart to seek after him, and he came to him in a vision, and he says, Now go to Joppa and find his men. Third, God catches us by surprise in the way he works, doesn't he? God ever caught you by surprise? God ever done something that really made your head spin? If he hasn't, I wonder if you really have Christ in your heart. Because God works in surprising ways all the time. Go to the call of Abram. He called Abram out and started this nation of people. What was Abram doing? His family was worshiping the lunar gods of that region. God did not pick Abram because Abram was mighty and amazing. He picked Abram because he's a good, faithful, loving God who works on behalf of his people. He's always at work. Verse 9, Peter's praying on the housetop, waiting for lunch to get there, waiting for the pizza delivery guy. And he gets hungry, and God does what he does. He catches him by surprise. This sheet comes down filled with lots of unclean animals, the kind that are warned about in Leviticus chapter 11. These would have been repulsive to a good Jew. Has anybody here ever eaten snake, like rattlesnake? Anybody? All right, Michael, you're the only brave. There we go. All right. Okay, Caitlin, a couple of you. Okay, that would be repulsive to me. If you put a rattlesnake in front of me, I'm likely to get sick there on the table okay? Disgusting, gross. I don't see how people eat that stuff. There's no way it tastes like chicken. You can't convince me of that. There's no way. But this is more than just, that's a gross food. I don't like snakes. This was against the Old Testament ceremonial laws. And Peter and the Jews who were good Jews were still observing some of these laws or all of these laws in an effort to keep their Jewish identity together. You know what God does? He puts all these unclean animals in this sheet. It kind of sags down in front of Peter, and he's looking at it like this. And he says, God says, rise, kill and eat. What does Peter say? No way, God. No way. Three times he says it. If God comes to you and speaks to you in a vision three times, hopefully you're not going to do this, right? But we resist God all the time, do we not? He knocks on our heart, and he says, go here. here. Talk to that person. Pray for this individual. Serve in that ministry team. No way, God. Uh-uh. For a little bit of perspective, Chuck, Swind- Chuck Swindoll says, this would be like asking a sincere, lifelong teetotaler to have a beer. Does that help you? Does that help you? Someone who says, I've never drinking, I've never had a drink in my life. And God wants me to do what? And Peter resists him. But here's the bigger question. Don't miss this. Here's the bigger question. What is God trying to teach Peter? What does he want Peter to learn? What does he want you to learn this morning? John Piper says this. With the final cleansing sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood already offered and the command to take the gospel to all nations already given, the old ceremonial laws about foods are lifted and the barrier to the Gentile world is removed. What does that mean? All that extra stuff, Jesus fulfilled it. It's gone. It's lifted. You don't carry that burden any longer. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of those things. And he says, Those laws that kept you separate from those people, and you have people in your world, you have neighbors, you have co workers that are those people, God says, Don't call them common, don't call them clean anymore this is the gospel rippling outward for the very first time it's the gospel moving outside of one people group one ethnicity the jews and it's moving out to the gentiles and unless someone here is jewish by birth you know what you ought to say right now amen this is you This is me. This is the gospel going out to all the world. Listen to me, church. This is why we cannot have a ministry and missions philosophy here at PG that says we will only serve the Pleasant Gardens community. We cannot. This is why we cannot have a mission and ministry philosophy that says we will only serve our church or our community or our zip code or our state or our nation. Jesus said, go into all the world. Preach the gospel and make disciples of who? Everybody that looks like you. No, of all nations. panta ethne, all ethnicities. People that are different. People that live in strange places. People that wear odd clothes. People right here in the community that you don't quite jive with a little bit. Maybe they live in a different part of the county. You say, oh, well, that's where the so-and-sos live. God might be calling someone here to go to him. It's in his word. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He says, I will give you the Holy Spirit. You will receive power to be my what, church? Witnesses. To give a witness about me. Why do we receive the Holy Spirit? It's clear to be his witness. We don't receive the Holy Spirit so that we can just come and sit. We receive the Holy Spirit so we can go out and speak. And be his witnesses to people that need to hear about Christ, you say where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, here at home. Judea, places right outside of home. Samaria, I I always call it the wrong side of the tracks, places. The ends of the earth. I don't think I need to explain that one. Listen, some of you are going to have a passion. Listen to me. Some of you have a passion. Some of you are growing in your passion to serve in a local ministry, a particular place here in this church. That's awesome. That's great. Some folks are going to scratch their serving itch by taking meals to the shelters around the county and getting to know those people who are their Judea, but they're not right here in Jerusalem. Amazing. Some of you will have an eye out to go serve with Doug at the disaster relief efforts across our country. Wonderful. And some of you, God may be calling. Maybe your children He's calling. Maybe your grandchildren. Maybe someone's sitting right down here on this floor this morning. God's calling to go to some far-flung corner of the earth so that people who have never heard the name of Jesus can become acquainted with Him. Let me ask you a question. What's your Jerusalem? Your home? Your office? Your neighborhood? What's your Judea? What is your Samaria? This one really hits close to home. What is your Samaria? What if God calls you to go to the ends of the earth? Just before the 1949 Los Angeles crusade, the Reverend Billy Graham's faith came under siege. A good friend of his who was also in the ministry, was rapidly shifting in his views about God's word. He was going further and further and further away from his belief that God's word was the inerrant, inspired word of God. And he tried to encourage Billy, come along with me. If you know anything about the 1949 crusade in Los Angeles, that was the one that catapulted him onto the national consciousness. With a heavy heart, he went out into the woods For a walk one evening. He dropped down to his knees. And he took his Bible. And he laid it on a stump. And he began to call on God and pray. Here's what he prayed. He said. Oh God. There are many things in this book. That I do not understand. There are some areas in this book. That do not seem to correlate. With modern science. He paused a minute. And then he went on. Father. I'm going to accept this. As thy word. By faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. And I will believe this. This book here. To be your inspired word. When he stood up that evening. That August night. He said his eyes stung with hot tears. And here's what he said. I sensed the presence and the power of God as I had not sensed it in months. Not all my questions were answered, but I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. See, Dr. Graham had no idea what was going to happen out there in the woods on that walk. We have no clue the good that God is doing in our lives even now. Don't grow weary. Be encouraged. Come to this place so you can be with other believers and be lifted up and strengthened and held accountable. We have no clue what God is doing right around the corner. Let me close with a couple of questions. First, what is God doing in your life right now that just might be bigger than what you can see on the surface? What's He doing? What kind of situations He puts you in? And it just goes so much deeper than you can see. Number two, how is God trying to get your attention so he can teach you something right now? How's he getting your attention? What's going on that's shaking you up a little bit to cause you to look up more than you typically would? Number three, maybe God's preparing you for what's ahead. If so, are you abiding in Christ and are you going to be ready and available when he calls you to serve him? Number four, maybe you're like Peter and you're resisting what God wants to do in and through you. No, no way, Lord. Not like this, not this way. Maybe you need to surrender to him today. Maybe you need to come lay down your arms. Just lay them down. Surrender is not a popular word in our world, is it? Red buttons with missiles are real popular, aren't they? Christ calls us to surrender. Last one. Is there any sin in your life that's keeping you from deeper fellowship with Jesus? Is there anything blocking that communion, that fellowship with Him? If there is, you know what you need to do biblically? You need to confess it. Today. Repent of it. That means you acknowledge it and you walk away from it. And you go back towards Christ. If there's something keeping you from him, you will not experience the flow and the power of the Holy Spirit. He's given you that spirit within you to live, to guide you, to fill you, to empower you. But if you're consciously walking in sin, maybe God's revealing it to you this morning. You're going to miss what God wants to do. Because you're reaching out for that fruit on that tree, just like Eve. God wants to give you his best, but we have to cooperate with him in his work.